watchers in the fourth dimension. A sort of electronic doctor. The silver hand. Something very wrong, yes. Something very wrong indeed. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And when I open the door, drop down as low as you can. Aim these things at their chests and squirt. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that sounds really dirty out of context. It sounded really dirty in context. True, true. All right, so this episode, we're off to the moon in the not-too-distant future where mankind will once again face off against everyone's second favourite monsters. That's right, it's time for the moon base. Starting off with our behind-the-scenes information, producer Innes Lloyd had hoped that the Cybermen would prove to be a worthy successor to the Daleks, and very shortly after production wrapped on the Tenth Planet, he approached Kit Padlow, who wrote the Tenth Planet, to write a follow-up story, this time set on the moon in order to tap into the growing interest in the space race between the the USA and the USSR. On its commission in November 1966, Pedler was informed that his story, which was at the time tentatively titled The Return of the Cybermen, would also need to incorporate the new companion Jamie. Not really wanting to adapt his plans, Pedler decided to just render him unconscious for most of the story. As with the previous story, The Underwater Menace, this one was recorded just a week ahead of its broadcast, heaping pressure on the director to ensure that it was completed on schedule. Speaking of the director, assigned to this story was a former actor by the name of Morris Barry, with his first contribution to the show. He'll actually return a couple of times as director in the Patrick Troughton era, before he makes a career shift back to acting, and will actually appear in the show as an actor in the late 70s with Tom Baker. Barry also had some other challenges to deal with. Episode 3 overran its allotted time slot and he had to cut some material to make it fit. Additionally, episode 3 was the end of the show's tenure at the Riverside Studios, and Barry had to oversee the move back to the much smaller Lime Grove Studio D for the final episode, as well as making it not look any different, so that was kind of a tough gig for him. From a musical perspective, we once again have some stock music. Designing this, we have Colin Shaw, marking his only gig on the show. He's also notable for design work on Doomwatch, The Lotus Eaters, and Tenko, and he would actually go on to be nominated for a couple of BAFTA awards for his work on The Borderers and The Voyage of Charles Darwin. We have a trio of costumers, both Daphne Dare and Sandra Reed return to the show, and they're joined by newcomer Mary Woods, who would never return to the show again. She's actually better known for her comedy work, and she would go on to be a costumer on The Benny Hill Show, The Goodies, and Faulty Towers. We move into our short summary, which is in the hands of Don on this occasion. The TARDIS crew land on the bouncy castle known as the Moon, and must stop the newly revamped Cybermen, who have tunneled like rats, into the Moonbase storeroom, mind-controlling crew members that have a sweet tooth into helping them capture the Gravitron so they can use it to destroy all life on Earth. Along the way, Jamie lays in bed, Ben yells at things because he's Ben, Polly makes solvents and a damn fine cup of coffee, Diane, while the Doctor gives quite possibly the best Doctor speech ever without the aid of a single Murray Gold music cue. It's the serial that gave the base under siege story its name, The Moon Base. Marvelous. So we start with episode one, which is missing. Did everyone do the animation or did anyone decide to do the recon or the narrated audio? I went with the animation this time. Animation. I also went with the animation. Animation all round. The animation for this one was quite good, I thought. I agree. I thought so too. Mm Mm-hmm. We start with the TARDIS crew, and, and it's actually Ben who figures out that they're on the moon. So 
so I have some questions about that. Maybe I'm just overthinking things, but I got a little bit confused on the timing of when they landed and when they rematerialized and when they saw the moon. Things seemed a little out of order, but that might just be me overthinking it. I'm going to freely admit I got distracted by their spacesuits and forgot about anything that happened prior to that. I was distracted by Ben giving some sass to the doctor. <laughs> ben sasses everyone. <laughs> It's a little better than just yelling, though. Yes. You know, giving yes. some sass as he yells. I think the spacesuits were wonderful. With the built-in sunglasses? Yes. 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 Very, very cool. <laughs> Everyone needs some moon goggles. I actually spent most of this episode thinking, God, those actually look really good animated. I hope they look half as good if we get to see them in one of the existing episodes. And by the time we get to, I was not disappointed. Yeah, yeah they worked. Yeah. I do like the fact that they decided that they needed spacesuit. It makes it a little more heavily rooted in, in science fact than I think maybe if this had been made two years previously, we might not necessarily have had that. Well, because two years earlier, people just didn't know anything about the moon. They thought it was just made of cheese. Right. The man on the moon, yes. as Jamie said. Absolutely. We're going to meet him? Yes, Jamie, we're going to meet the man on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> I do actually briefly want to touch on that. I, I haven't said anything about her in a while, but this is something that Sandiford talks about in her article on this story. In the in July of 1965 was when the Mariner 4 probe finished collecting data about Mars and found that there was almost certainly no life on Mars and that there had probably never even been ancient civilizations there. This caused a little bit of a shift in science fiction where the kind of more fanciful stories about Zabi on a strange planet start to disappear because space is now seen as being a bit more empty so we shift towards this more kind of realistic tone of man colonizing the moon as an example that was just something i thought was a little interesting definitely more grounded less fantasy did anyone else figure out exactly i'm assuming that the the moon jumps they did in the well was animated so it was tough to tell i'm assuming it was a wire stunt i think so i think it would be they use a lot of wire things in the episodes between the spaceships and everything so i would think that the jumps would be as well i'm fairly certain if we could actually see it the kirby wires would be pretty obvious anyone excited about 50 years from now we'll have weather control on the moon what is this obsession with controlling the weather for some reason i just don't understand why that seems like such a strong desire because there's so many movies and sci-fi tropes that cover that and I just I don't understand it. I think it's because mankind has always been at the mercy of the weather. The only thing we can do is try to survive it. We've never had a way to conquer it and that's something that's more or less in our DNA to try to take over things and control it. With tools. With tools. Okay well I just thought it was a bad idea. Yeah. I didn't say it was a good idea. <laughs> I keep thinking about when I, that plot device was given, I keep thinking of the Avengers movie. No, not the Marvel one, the better one with Sean Connery in it. As someone who's a fan of the actual 60s TV show, I try not to think about that movie. So does Sean Connery. <laughs> <laughs> Fundamentally, I think the point of the Gravitron is to be a MacGuffin. It's the device by which the Cybermen plan to destroy humanity. So it's something that's both our, our salvation from the weather as well as our potential destruction. And then ultimately the destruction of the Cybermen. Again. <laughs> Again, yes, obviously. One of the things I found interesting and thought it was going to go somewhere, but it never did, is when they first get there 
and Holly was going to go check on Jamie and the doctor like stops her awkwardly and just kind of stares at her with his hand on her arm and she's like explaining why she needs to go see Jamie and he's just like awkwardly staring and then eventually lets her go and I thought that that was going to mean anything but no it was just awkward (laughs) 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 <laughs> I just thought it was a, a weird interaction because it's like usually there'd be some sort of dialogue on both sides or if he was being quiet, maybe like there was something wrong with him. But no, no, he's just an awkward scientist, dude. I think it could be because at least in this incarnation of the doctor, he seems to know things. He doesn't explain them to anyone, but you get the definite feeling that when they arrive somewhere, he has some idea of what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right, Don. That's definitely felt like the running theme so far with this incarnation of the Doctor. One element I really liked here, and it it mirrors the Tenth Planet like so much in this story, is how the crew of the Moon Base was another international crew, bizarrely lacking in Americans this time, (laughs) and with a decidedly less angry commander. Again, it's very Roddenberry-esque, not that anyone in the UK would have seen Star Trek at this time, but that that idea that, you know, a hundred years from, from this time, there would be a lot more international collaboration. You would have a French Mr. Bean in space. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Isn't that the dream? And everyone had conveniently placed national flags on their uniforms. And name tags yes. once again. <laughs> I think the national flags make sense, because you think about spacesuits and the ISS today, they all wear the flag on spacesuits. Yeah, I think I'm just more used to seeing it on like a shoulder or an arm, not like right in the middle yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah, the placement was a little awkward. I really liked the the feel of this first episode. The Cybermen all snooping and creeping around and it definitely gives kind of a classic haunted house, pick them off one by one kind of vibe to it, don't you think? That's oh, yeah. I got a lot. And it felt, I really enjoyed mm-hmm. that. I had that same note. This feels very haunted house. And the music helped. Yes. On that note, there's that wonderful sequence in the story that's animated so well. And, and I believe they used the shooting scripts to animate it. So I imagine this would have been in the episode. Ben's going into the storeroom to try and find Ralph. You clearly see in the shadows an outline of a Cyberman. And then Ben shows up and takes the place of the Cyber Shadow. And again, it feeds into that tension. It's really well done. That reveal is great. That's something yeah. I really enjoyed. I thought that was well. Sh- I mean, if it's going exactly from what the shooting script said it was supposed to be, then on the if the animation's true to that, I thought it was excellent. And then you have Jamie with his reveal of the Phantom Piper. Phantom Piper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I love because the Scottish are a suspicious lot, so obviously that's kind of where his mind would go. If you're going to sideline Jamie, at least they gave him a little bit of things to do than other than just lay there. That's true. There is one other thing I wanted to touch on, and it's another nice little mirror of the Tenth Planet, and that's when Polly is talking about the automated medical machine that's taking care of Jamie. She talks about how it can't be nice to him, and that shows her human touch, which I think is very, very fitting for a Cyberman story. I really liked that. It was a good touch. Mm-hmm. Given that she was the one who faced off against the Cybermen in the Tenth Planet and effectively lost that argument, it was, again, a nice way of having her stick to her guns and, and show that she wasn't browbeaten by that. Speaking of Polly, I greatly enjoy that our cliffhanger at the end of the first episode, it isn't Polly who's in distress, it's Jamie. It's the other companion in a skirt. <laughs> ah! 
I was trying to avoid making that joke, but I'm really glad that you did. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. My apologies to any of our Scottish listeners. I do have a comment on it, though, because imagine him in that spacesuit with his kilt hyped up (laughs) (laughs) and then trying to get out of said spacesuit without flashing anybody. Like, props to him. It had to be awkward. It's no wonder he hit his head. (laughs) I was hoping for a POV shot as he's like all dazed and concussed and he thinks it's the Phantom Piper. I wanted to see like his POV shot of the Cyberman walking towards him slowly while holding a bagpipe. Or something. <laughs> yes. As we move into episode two, we transition into live action footage. I really dig the new Cyberman design. I, I, I've always mm-hmm. loved that 10th planet design, but here they're still recognizable, but much sleeker. They're kind yeah. of mod, so kind of rolling with the times. <laughs> I think they look great. I like this design. I like the 10th planet design and I like the design we're going to see coming up soon. Later on, I start to like the designs less and less as their handles and headphone like things get bigger (laughs) and it just doesn't work for me as well. But this is a good design. I think I liked everything except for like the weird claw hands. I just thought it was rather strange because, you know, like a lot of the things that they're trying to do requires hands. So I thought it was interesting that they went with that kind of, of a design because obviously the Cybermen are doing this partially to themselves. So I, I just thought it was a, an interesting choice, a weird choice, not one I would have gone with. I'm with you on that, Julie. That's the only thing about the design <laughs> I think that didn't work. Again, it it just doesn't seem practical. Everything else was great. As you said, it was sleeker and, you know, made them less clunky. So they moved around a lot better. But it's just the hands weirded me out. I think the one thing that really feeds into that and makes it even more confusing for me is that in the intro, I referenced some deleted material from episode three. That scene was going to very directly tie these Cybermen to the ones we saw in the 10th planet as ones that left Mondas before it came back to the Earth, settled on another planet, Telos, which we'll see in a later Cybermen story, and came back later. So these are, by the script, were meant to be very specific spin-offs of the Cybermen we've already seen scene. Those Cybermen had four fingers and a thumb. So why do these ones have claws? Upgrade. Because it's an upgrade, right? So I upgrade to claws. Yeah, that's a weird (laughs) choice. Yeah. Other than the design, I want to talk about this one comment that was made. We are not equipped for a full-scale epidemic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Neither are we. Did some of this seem a little too relevant? Yes. When are the Cybermen showing up in 2020 to take advantage of coronavirus? But they aren't putting it in our sugar, or are they? I don't take sugar in my coffee. I don't think I've been sick, so I guess it might be in the sugar. Yeah, I don't take sugar in my coffee either. I'm not sick. You're not sick. Boom. There it is. Proven. (laughs) I made simple syrup the other day, and I'm fine. But when did you purchase the sugar that you put in the simple syrup? Was it before or after Uh, the virus started? Before. Long before. There you go. We're all doomed, so we should probably finish this episode (laughs) before we all die. (laughs) So Ben wants to leave, and this is where we get that wonderful, wonderful speech that Don mentioned from the Doctor. There are some corners of the universe which have bred the most terrible things. Things which act against everything we believed in. They must be fought. The mission statement of the show right there. It's not loud. It's not bombastic. It's stated almost with a quiet resignation. And it's just perfect. It's Troughton nailing the part. 
Yes. And I love it. Yeah. It's been interesting moving over to Trout, and I just kind of wanted to to touch on that a little bit because we've already mentioned it a few times where in certain cases he's quieter than the first doctor because he's often contemplating especially at the very beginning of things when he's getting his bearings on where he's at and possibly remembering what kind of events might be happening but then he's also a little bit more manic in that he loves to steal things like clothing because in this episode he steals someone's shoe (laughs) So it's just interesting that he kind of goes from one extreme to the other of being the very quiet contemplative type, but also being the very active crazy type. It's been different and fun. Speaking of the shoe, did anyone notice it had a brogued M on it for Moonbase or just Moon? (laughs) (sighs) I I did not notice that. No. I rather liked that design choice. I think I was distracted by the weird hat cap things that the guys that were actually controlling the Gravitron were wearing. I'm surprised we didn't have the doctor declaring I should like a hat like that. Right? That was kind of shocking. I mean, other than the moon suit helmet that he wears, he doesn't really wear a hat, which, you know, already knocks it down in my ratings a little. (laughs) The electrocution effect. Can we talk about that? It was done in the first episode, but obviously we didn't truly see it because it was animated. But I thought the electrocution effect looked good. I thought it looked very good. Yeah. I was really yeah. impressed with that. I enjoyed seeing the doctor being good at manipulating people and just basically carrying on a bluff. Most important than anything else is that we have the ever important Polly making coffee. She yes. makes coffee twice in this cereal. Yes. And each time very important. It is actually. It's quite yeah. plot related. <laughs> Let's talk about that because I mean I remember as a child and in my teens, this scene in documentaries was always held up as Doctor Who being kind of misogynistic. And what was always left out was that this was actually kind of critical to the plot. It wasn't just sending her off to make coffee to get her out of the way. Did they leave out where Ben says this is man's work, the actual misogynistic part? Yes, they did. <laughs> If you're going to do a documentary, you could pay attention. I'm just saying. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's what's happened here is the writing. They are distracting the audience by hiding such an interesting plot development through something to them. They would not even catch their attention. A woman going to make coffee. It hides it for 1967 audiences. I believe we're at 67 here. 67. Correct. So I think it's clever in doing that. And that's the way you have to see it. Obviously, when we saw it, it like it all got our attention. But it would have not been seen at all back then. It would have been like, oh, okay. Who knows? Polly might legitimately might make the best coffee. In my headcanon, that's true. Because this is the second serial, <laughs> both by the same writer, where she's made coffee. And she does it twice in this one. And, the, yeah. and she's doing it in 2070. Who knows what type of coffee machine they have? Yeah. Our favorite barista. Polly. <laughs> I know we touched on the sugar and I don't want to go down that whole rabbit hole, but I thought it was interesting because it reminded me of another show where they thought that something was wrong with the sugar, which was in Sherlock. So I just um, thought of that parallel. Hmm. Yeah. And of course, so- Gatiss and Moffat. Never watched Doctor Who, so that there can't be a connection there. <laughs> <laughs> When that reveal came up, I was a little shocked because I thought, didn't the doctor say he had tested everything? Yes. Except the sugar, apparently. Except the food. Oops. Except the thing that people actually ingest. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we'd had that little hint a little earlier, which I always thought was kind of silly in that the hole in the wall where the Cybermen are hiding was hidden by bags of sugar. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. That all ties it together. I just imagine like before all these events took place, the Cybermen like conspiring together and saying things like, all right, here's our plan to defeat them. One word, sugar. Diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on from sugar, that does lead quite nicely into the cliffhanger here, which I thought was wonderfully tense and yet kind of silly at the same time. When the doctor says, did they search in here? That's really tense. Yeah. But it's also ridiculous when you just see them like, poking around in in the infirmary and they're just like are they here are they here and it's like they can't be in the table like that's not how this works guys. you don't think that's got, it's the guy with the air conditioner in his chest do you <laughs> <laughs> are these things like transformers can they transform themselves into a medical bed speaking of costumes for the cybermen did anyone notice they all appeared to be wearing doc martens oh, why yes. wouldn't they be <laughs> Yes. Lace up Doc Martens. Clearly the height of cyber technology. They have removed emotions, not style. <laughs> One thing I was impressed of is I know that they use stock music, but I thought they did a wonderful job. Oh, yeah. Yes. I love Agreed. the use of music and sound oh. in this entire serial. Yeah. Yes. I'm with you. So good. It really does prove that you don't need something specially composed when you have the library of the BBC available to you. Just use it right. Yep. Yeah. That brings us into episode three, when we start out by finally hearing the Cybermen speak. And it was glorious. I was disappointed. I love it and I hate it. I preferred the original voices. These are a little over-modulated for me. I find myself going, what? What did he say? And he was repeating it. And I still couldn't like, what? Yeah, exactly. Yes. When I hear it, especially when the scene where they say, raise your right arm, raise your left arm. I was waiting for him to go, now dance, dance, dance. <laughs> So yeah, I, I love it and hate it because I can't always understand what they're saying. I like the modulation, just like tone it back by four and then, okay, I can understand. I could yeah. understand them clearly. Maybe it's because I'm just a huge Daft Punk fan. I, I, maybe that's it. <laughs> that's probably it. Uh, of course, we find out that they recognize the Doctor. That's yet another, in case you weren't sure about this guy, he's definitely the Doctor. I think we should talk about how Ben is able to wonderfully recall what they used before when dealing with Cybermen. And then he realized that they couldn't work, so he comes up with another plan. This episode in particular really highlights Ben to being something more than just a yelling machine. Ish. Eh. <laughs> I'm going to give that point to Polly. Yeah, it still goes to Polly. Oh, no, you're right, because she comes up with the idea. It's, it's always been a problem for me when I see like a show deal with a problem before and they seem to can't remember what they did before to do to fix the problem. No, he, he definitely like tones it back in this episode. He's not as yelly as he is, but he Polly contributes. He, he does contribute, but then he has to go and have that line of, this is men's work. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Although one thing with Polly, when she's like, look at all of these chemicals. Let's mix them all together just to make sure we find one that works. And I'm like, that sounds like a terrible idea. To be fair, it was just the solvents. It's still a terrible idea. <laughs> it's a more localized terrible idea. Was it my imagination or did they put the solvent cocktail into a plastic squirty bottle? And yet Ben explained like the full like physics of how a spray <laughs> bottle works. 
I yeah. really was confused by that. Like, was this like, <laughs> was this product placement in 1967? Ooh, try the new spray bottle. The bottle could have been glass because they were in a lab and most of that stuff is made out of glass. Yes. Ooh, I'll go with the glass theory, but still it was just kind of like, I don't know. There must have been some other way because I was just like, don't throw everything together in one. Like when she was like going through and she was like, well, you can use stuff like nail varnish. And I was like, oh, great, Paula, you're doing great. And then she's like, let's mix all the things. And I'm like, no. <laughs> mix some all the things in a very tight and closed area with no wind or fan blowing and just deeply breathe. Yeah, let's get high on Here, vapors. Let's mix this bleach and ammonia. <laughs> and if, if there's one thing that this whole spray bottle development proves, it proves one thing. No matter how hard you try, you cannot make a good action shot of somebody spraying a bottle. It just does not work. <laughs> That's true. Of course, this whole thing does also lead to the part that was already mentioned where Ben says this is men's work, which is very toxic. And I love the fact that Polly just ignores him and goes along anyway. I'm like, good for you, Polly. Yes. Mm -hmm. But we also are missing the macho showdown between Ben and Jamie. Yeah. Also really toxic. Machismo. <laughs> First off, if I'm going to see a fight between Ben and Jamie, Jamie's going to win. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. But Ben's usually useless, let's be honest. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it seemed like it was kind of like a impressing Polly. Yes, yes, definitely. I, I'm wondering if we're going in that direction, the little triangle direction. Love triangles are the worst because really a love triangle should be everyone likes each other. And it's just like, <laughs> but no, that's never what it is. It's not a true triangle. Is there really any choice between Jamie and Ben? Jamie all day, every day. Maybe Polly has a lot of potatoes that need peeling. <laughs> that's so dirty that's so dirty Don. so back on topic so when they do actually get to the cybermen the way that those chess units are animated as foaming away with the um solvent cocktail looks really cool i really wish we could see that in live action because i, I want to know if what they were able to actually realize on screen compares to how cool it looked in the animation I really liked the foam coming out of the mouth. I'm not sure if it was on this one, but it was on one of them. I think where Ben yeah. threw the flask. That is genuinely disturbing. That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> yes. That was at the very end because it was still animated. Right. Speaking of the ending, when that was happening and I'm like, there is no way they had that many Cyberman costumes. There's seven plus people on screen at the same time. I then actually loaded up the loose cannon reconstruction and I can happily say that I was wrong. Yeah, I think I actually counted them in episode four and there were a lot of them even at the beginning of episode four. It was really yeah. impressive. Very much so. And I loved how they did that with like the music and then like showing the feet. And I was just like, that is really well done. And seeing it in the animated, I was like, oh man, I wish we could see some of it live. And then they had a little bit at the beginning of the next episode. I was like, oh, thank you. Okay, I did write it down. I counted 11 in episode four, which has got to be the most we've ever seen of one monster on the screen at the same time. Yes. Which now I know why they didn't have budget for new music to be composed for this story. <laughs> Speaking of music, I have to point out how much I thoroughly enjoyed the moon chase that Ben comes through to rescue because Ben saves Benoit. Ben says Ben. Yes, I enjoy it so much because first, a chase on the moon is in itself hilarious because everyone's moving slowly. Yep. Secondly, yep. the music is ramping up, but then the way the editing is, it cuts hard over to Ben, and then the music drops off each time. To which it just it comes across as really, really funny. I, I'm always confused by that because you would think that you would want to in order to continue the suspense and tension since both scenes are culminating to go to the 
the same place. You want the music to carry over. So the fact that they drop the music each time between the cuts, it just seems really hilarious to me. This episode is also where the idea that this is effectively a retelling of the 10th planet really shines through. We've seen off the first wave. Well, guess what? There's a second wave coming. We're going to send someone out to try and deal with something. Oh, he's going to get attacked by the Cybermen. The base commander, who admittedly is a little cooler than Cutler was in the 10th planet. And then we have a cliffhanger with the Cybermen marching on the base. It's at this point very much a retread to me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, episode four, which begins with that March of the Cybermen that has already been mentioned where it gives the impression that there are a lot of them because there were. And it looked great and it was wonderful to see the full sets and the models of the moon base in live action. I thought they looked good for the time period. Oh yeah. Yeah. From what we can see of this story, it certainly looks really impressive. I like the way the, the story's woven around it as well. And you've got the Cybermen on the moon and you've got Hobson going, well, all we have to do is wait it out. Well, no, it doesn't quite work like that. And the doctor is like, hmm, something's going on. And then we find out that the Cybermen can control the infected from outside. And Zombie Evans is even more creepy in actual footage than he was in animation. That was just really well done. That whole thing of them being able to control them even without their headgear was a bit of a surprise and super creepy. Yes. Yeah, the makeup and design of our infected was quite good. And of course, that leads into the plot point of the support rocket gets deflected because of Zombie Evans and goes to head into the sun, which is grim as hell. Yeah, especially how long did they say it would take them? Two weeks? Three weeks? Something like that. Great. They get to think about what's going to happen to them. (laughs) I don't mean to get too dark, but in that situation, wouldn't you just depressurize and just get it over with? I don't know. You can catch a lot of Netflix in two to three (laughs) weeks on the way there. (laughs) Well, and also they would probably still try to find a way to get out of that situation. True. They'd probably be trying to override or, or something. Maybe if the Gravitron has that kind of reach, it can reach out and grab them again. Yeah. yeah. But you're right, Anthony, the tone there, it's, yeah. a, it's a very interesting, very grim, somber tone they drop. Yeah. Similar to the, the capsules that they had in the 10th planet. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I did love the shot of when they <laughs> look through, I think, like, I guess like a a viewing window or almost oh, like a periscope. Yeah, yeah, the radar thing. And you see the Cybermen. It looks like they're massaging, massaging an antenna. <laughs> <laughs> it looks so... <laughs> oh, that like, one stop. Tell those damn yeah. Cybermen to stop molesting my antenna. Calm down, yeah. boys. Calm down. <laughs> There's a lot uh, of interesting things that happen here. There's the doctor tells Ben and Jamie to go and like barricade the rest of the guys in the infirmary because they could potentially be lackeys for the Cybermen as well. They run in there and then they just stand there, like, oh, the door's still closed. But everything's they just fine. Told you to barricade the door, and you're like, oh, well, it's still shut, so it's fine. And at that <laughs> point, that's when they start being reactivated. They do everything with this script, and I actually give a lot of credit to Morris Barry on this, to ramp up the tension and really give that under siege vibe. You've got a threat in the inside, you've got a threat on the outside. Just as they deal with one threat, the Cybermen puncture the dome and there's the risk of depressurization, which, if you think about the time with the space race, would have been a very, very real concern as well. I think they're really tapping into what was going on in the broader world, and in the run-up to this story was when Apollo 1 was actually destroyed by fire at its launch complex, didn't even make it into space, and all three astronauts were killed. So space accidents were a big concern, and that's 
really drilling into that fear. As we mentioned earlier in the first episode, it had that kind of haunted house, pick them off one by one theme. But more and more as you like think about this, it's got a group of international people working together on a, in space, but this time on the moon. An infection that comes in for no reason, a monster that comes in and starts terrorizing them. And we have to lock things down and we have to, we're getting attacked from outside and we have to huddle together. You can see the influence of this type of story streaming into Alien and into The Thing. Oh, no doubt. I, I love that. Can we talk about how that Polly once again making coffee leads to saving everyone's lives? Yes. Because thankfully they had the coffee tray. Yeah. Very strong coffee tray. Now I know that if ever I'm in a life-threatening situation, I'm going to send someone to make coffee. Make coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Always a good idea. It apparently works really well. As long as they're not the one getting picked off next, it's going to be fine. 50-50 chance, right? Depends on Could, who you send. I need to hire someone called Polly. Or someone who's really good with coffee. Ooh, that too. I do that. And I love that there is a safety catch on the, the Gravitron. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, it's like, oh, it doesn't go any lower. And he's like, oh, wait a second. Just disable. Let's just turn the safety off. It's fine. I love it. And I don't love it at the same time, because to a certain degree, it's like a plot device just to be like, oh, well, how can we make it a little bit more tense? But how can we make it work? But at the same time, I'm like, well, there would be a safety catch. So actually, that kind of works. <laughs> And this is really where we see the Gravitron make that transition from being a threat to being our salvation, because it prevents the Cybermen from firing their weapon. Then they can turn off the safety catch and fling the Cybermen into space, which, by the way, way <laughs> was comical enough on it. And then you add the sound effects on top of it, and that was borderline hilarious. Hold on. So we have yet another <laughs> Cyberman story with yeeting in it? <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> They were yeeted oh, into God. space. So that puts the yeet count at two for those of you keeping track at home. <laughs> Are we going to Do have not to put add that, that one? Your spreadsheet, Anthony, it's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but you know how much I like spreadsheets. So that happens, and like the head scientist dude is like giving everyone orders, and the TARDIS crew go to walk away, and he's like, oh, well, we have enough madman here already. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> Speaking of the departure, the panning shot across the desolate moon at the end, I felt that really kind of emphasized the realness of the setting, as well as the eeriness of space and zero gravity or low gravity. I really, really liked that. Yep. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about poor Jamie with his scrunched up kilt in his uh, <laughs> spacesuit. <laughs> Because, like, it shows them, like, him trying to get out of his spacesuit at the end, and I'm just like, they're not going to show it. That's going to chafe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. We end the story with a never-mentioned-before device of the time scanner. How that is different to the time-space visualizer from the chase, I don't know. But we get the claw. The claw! Apparently in the next episode, they're going to have crab legs for dinner. So that's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That brings us to the end of our discussion on the story itself. Next up, metrics. I will take nominations on the camp count. I say zero. 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 Yeah, zero. No, there were there were no explain laters either that I noticed. And there were no quarries. That's zero across the board. This is the first story since the War Machines where we had zero across the board, by the way. Okay, scores. Julie, my apologies, but you are up first. I know how much you hate that. 
I'm really glad we had this conversation because I'm not going to lie, when I first watched this, I wouldn't say I was a little bit bored, but I thought especially the first episode moved a bit slow. But after talking to you guys about it, a lot of things just kept getting better and better the more that we talked about it. Minus some of the little bit of misogyny from Ben and, you know, a few of the difficulty things there. I'm going to probably give it seven and a half spiked sugar containers out of ten. Okay, Riley, you're up next. I thoroughly enjoyed this. It's just straightforward, creepy sci-fi slash horror, tying a little Doctor Who, like bits of a doctor, like fooling people and ideas and saving the day. And of course, his great monologue that he gives. Uh, the use of music is excellent. The sets are wonderful. I love so much about this. It's just it just is just a fun ride. I mean, it doesn't have to like hit you really hard in the higher part of your brain, but it's just fun. It's just a fun ride and it's wonderful. Yes, to answer your question from earlier, Anthony. Yes, this is the second doctor, Troughton. He's he's the doctor now. It may have took this type of episode, but it works. Four stories in. Yes, four stories in. So I will give it eight out of ten spray bottles a squirtin'. Okay. Don. Well, in answer to your question, yes, Troughton is the Doctor, and for me, has been since his, his first episode. This is a really good story. It hits a lot of different elements. You've got that horror aspect. You've got the tension. You've got the great score. There were a few slow moments, one of which I didn't like until I realized the Doctor was on the floor looking at people's shoes, and then it became funny. But overall, I really, really liked this story, and you can see why it became a template for other base under siege stories on down the line i'm gonna have to give it 8.5 weird ping pong balls with holes in them on your arms cyberman things out of 10 because what the hell were those i don't know (laughs) speed holes that make the cybermen go faster speed holes (laughs) benoit speed holes This was a story that, honestly, I never really thought about much. I've seen it at least twice before, but I always just kind of thought it was there. Having immersed myself a bit more in the time in terms of my other TV watching and reading a bit about the history, and watching everything in sequence with a more critical eye made me really appreciate and enjoy this. I think it's very, very well directed. It taps into a lot of the thoughts and fears of the time, the space race, back to the cybernetic side, the weather that we talked about, how empty space is. It builds tension really nicely. And even though we've got some misogyny from Ben, he has frequently shown how wrong he is in this, even if he doesn't recognize it, but the the script makes sure he has shown that. I think I'm with Don on this. I'm going to give this one eight and a half throbbing veins out of 10, which actually averages this story out to 8.13 and is our highest rated story of the season so far. All right. Which means we are just about out of time at this point. We'll be back next time when we're all going on a summer holiday. In the meantime, all of our previous episodes are available on your favorite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watches4D. And as a reminder, you can email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or a rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. Thank you very much for listening and have a good one. You 
have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension, Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippec, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, a more localised terrible idea, was recorded on Wednesday the 17th of June 2020. And always remember, if everyone's getting sick, make sure you check the sugar. Weird moon virus caused by Cybermen? Sugar. Coronavirus? Sugar. Bubonic plague? Probably the sugar.